Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to see you. Well, actually not see you, but to know that you're out there in the virtual world uh, as we join together in another period of Bible study. We've had a really gorgeous day in Middle Tennessee, and we are blessed to uh, be able to serve God in in view of all that he has done for us and the physical blessings that he has showered upon us. Uh, we were glad that, to have another opportunity this morning for uh, an assembly as we met in our parking lot and were able to observe the Lord's Supper and do all the other acts of worship, uh, that, and in particular to the things that require a coming together as the church to observe the Lord's Supper, to contribute of our means. Uh, those two things in particular necessitate us coming together, and we're able to do that, and we're so glad that we have been able to do that today. We're continuing tonight online. We've been trying to devote the same kind of times every week to our worship and Bible studies. And so typically on Sunday night at six o'clock, we gather for another period of study and worship. Uh, We're doing that here uh, online. And then, of course, on Wednesday night at seven o'clock as well. Uh, These are not the perfect circumstances. This is not really what we want. We'd love to see you sitting out there in the pews, uh, being able to interact with one another uh, face to face. Uh, for the time being, hopefully for the not very long future, but at least for the time being, uh, this is the best way to go forward. And so we are doing that. On Sunday nights, I hope as you remember, we have been studying the very important subject of Bible authority. We think that Bible authority is such a critical subject and so important for us to know well, to be able to apply accurately and to share with other people also. Because it is certain that the the religious division that exists in the world today results from the fact that people have not understood and properly applied Bible authority. Bible authority, if you want to just really simply explain it, Bible authority is how we go to the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, and from them determine what God wants us to do. He has told us, he has authorized us in his service, and that's revealed to us in his word. And and so how do we study that? And from it derive what God wants us to be doing. Can you imagine uh, how terrible it would be if, if God had not authorized us, if he had not told us what to do and how to do it? it? It'd be worse than, although you might parallel it to the idea of taking a new job. And so you have this new job. But no one has told you what to do or how to do it. And so you're just struggling along without the necessary information on your new job. And so after a week or two, the boss calls you into the office and says, listen, you're fired. You have not been doing your job. You have not been living up to what I expected of you. And you said, but you never told me. I don't care. You're fired anyway. You can't imagine a situation like that, can you? Neither could you imagine a situation where God has a will for us, how he wants us to be living, but he never told us. He never explained it, never said how to do it. That would be terrible, but thankfully we don't, have, we don't serve a God like that. We serve a loving God who has perfectly revealed to us what he wants us to do and how he wants us to do it. Bible authority, let me real quickly remind you where our study has gone leading up to this 
point. This is actually our fifth lesson on Bible authority. And in the previous ones, we talked about the fact that Bible authority is not established by human thinking, by what we like, what our opinions might say. It doesn't come from human sources. It doesn't even come from religious human sources who get together, meet in conferences and so forth, and take votes and legislate laws and rules. That's not how we get authority. Our authority must come from God. And we know that he speaks to us by his inspired word, the Bible. And specifically when we're seeking law for us today, we look to the New Testament, which is our authority for action today. God authorizes us to act. As we read our New Testaments, we look for direct commands or statements. Very easy. When God says do it or don't do it, that's what we do. Secondly, approved examples. When we see first century Christians and their actions recorded for us in the New Testament, when we understand that these were approved examples, then we are to imitate those examples. And then, of course, there's the area that we refer to as necessary inference. Some things are implied in the scriptures. And when we read those things that are implied, when it is a necessary inference, that is an inescapable conclusion based upon what has been said, then that authorizes us to act as well. Command, example, inference. Those three methodologies God uses to authorize us. We talked about the difference between specific and generic authority. When God specifies something, we just do it that way. We're not left with any freedom of choice. Some things, though, God has authorized us to do in a more uh, generic or general way, and that leaves us room for judgment. Expediencies are things that help us do what has been authorized. Last week, we talked about the silence of the scriptures. When the, when the Bible is silent, we must be silent. We can only act where God has spoken. Uh, the, the long-standing motto is where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Uh, our brethren for generations have been saying that, and we believe that as well. And then we also talked about determining when examples are binding, because there are a lot of examples in the New Testament. (laughs) Some are sinful examples that we obviously wouldn't imitate, but others, uh, there are other things that people did that weren't sinful. Some of them (laughs) we are to imitate. Others are incidental. And last week we talked about the difference between those things. Now, what we want to do in our study tonight is begin to talk about applying the principles of Bible authority to the work of the church specifically. (coughs) When we think about the work of the church, uh, there's been a lot of division, a lot of controversy. Uh, Even among our own brethren, for many decades, churches of Christ have been divided because there's been a difference in application of Bible authority towards what the church should be doing as a collective body. Uh, How should we apply the principles of Bible authority to the work of the church? That's what we want to begin to investigate in our lesson tonight. We believe that the church is to act in three specific realms, three broad general realms, evangelism, that is taking the gospel to the lost people of the world, benevolence, uh, excuse me, let me, let me do it in this order. Evangelism, taking the gospel to the lost people of the world. Edification, strengthening, building up those who are already Christians. 
and benevolence, a, a work of providing for the needs of people. We want to talk about all three of those. <coughs> and, and, and in doing that, we want to show how the Bible authorizes the church to act and how to act. Uh, so let's start out with the work of evangelism. I don't think we really have to prove to people that the church is authorized to act in evangelism, but we're going to do it anyway because we want to show we're doing what God wants us to do. We're, we're doing what God has instructed us or authorized us to do. The church is to work in the realm of evangelism. Let's look at our authority. First of all, we have what constitutes a direct statement in 1 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 15. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says that uh, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how to, thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Special emphasis on that last expression. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's a pretty good word picture. A pillar or and ground, that's the, the foundation and the, and the structure built on the foundation. The very basis of the church, what the, its foundation, what's, what it stands for, is to promote God's truth. And so that direct statement would serve as authority for the church to be engaged in promoting the word of God. We have lots of approved example of New Testament churches working in the realm of evangelism. For, uh, look with me at just a few. I'm not going to have the verses on the screen tonight, so you're going to need to have your Bibles ready and, and turn to these passages. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning verse 3, here's the church at Philippi, the city of Philippi in Macedonia, what we would know as northern Greece today. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, uh, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, the word fellowship there suggests the idea of joint participation. We're going to see a little bit later in our study that the church at Philippi had actually been involved in providing financial support to Paul as he went about his preaching work. But here we have a church then who was in fellowship with Paul as he did the preaching of the gospel. That's an approved example. The church at Philippi was involved in evangelism. We can be as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, here's another good church of the first century. I think Philippi and Thessalonica were both good churches, really good churches in the first century. Philippi was involved in supporting Paul, doing evangelism. Notice what Paul says about the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. You see that? From you, from you, the church at Thessalonica sounded out the word of the Lord in Macedonia and Achaia. And so the church at Thessalonica was engaged in evangelism. So by means of direct statement and approved examples, we know that the church is authorized. A local congregation is authorized to act in the realm of evangelism. But the big question then would be how should we do that? How to go about it? We know we should be doing it. 
But has God supplied us information about how to do it? And the answer to that is an emphatic yes. God has told us how to act. First of all, we know that a church may support a preacher while he works among them. If you want an immediate example, the church at College View supporting me to work together with you as an evangelist. That's an authorized thing. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 at verse 14, the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so there's authority for us. If we wanted to sort of, and I want to try to do this, make a graphical representation of these various patterns. Let's use this as our example. Here's a local church, and there's a preacher in that local congregation, a member of that local congregation, working with that local congregation. A church may support a preacher while he works with them. We have authority for doing that. But that's not the only way this work of evangelism might move forward. We know that a congregation can support a man while he works in another area. I want to take you back to the church at Philippi again. Notice Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 verse 15. Now ye Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once again to my necessity. Notice that Paul wasn't at Philippi. He's not referring to a time when he was at Philippi preaching at Philippi. He was referring to a time after he had left Philippi and he was specifically he mentioned when he was in Thessalonica. So here's how we might graphically represent this. The church at Philippi sent directly to Paul to preach when he was in other areas. We know, for instance, when he was in Thessalonica, Those are two different cities. Philippi and Thessalonica are two different cities. So he wasn't preaching in Philippi. He wasn't there doing the local work of an evangelist in Philippi. He was was off in another field of endeavor. And the church at Philippi supported him in the work that he was doing while he was in those fields of endeavor. So a congregation may support a man while he works in a different area. That's certainly authorized. But that's not the only way we could add this. Several congregations may send support to the same man as he labors in the gospel. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. So Paul is talking there about the time that he was working with the church in Corinth. But notice he said, I robbed other churches, plural. I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service at Corinth. And so if we wanted to graphically represent this arrangement, we don't know how many churches were involved, but there was more than one because Paul uses the plural. I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. And so more than one church sent to the preacher in order to do that work. Now, we believe that that constitutes the the fullness of the New Testament pattern in regards to churches doing evangelistic work, churches doing evangelistic work, specifically the work of 
supporting the preaching of the gospel. And so we saw that a church may support a preacher working among them locally. A church can support a preacher working in another field. In fact, multiple churches can support the same preacher as he works in another field, uh, assuming that no one church maybe could commit to the full support of the man in that field. And so several churches could communicate with that man, have fellowship with that man, support that man as he preached in that field. All three of those constitute a New Testament pattern of authority for how the preaching of the gospel, how evangelism can be done. Now, quickly, let's point out that there are some errors uh being practiced in the religious world. And sad to say, even among our own brethren, there's some errors. And so when we're talking about the how to do evangelistic work, which we just described, note that we cannot do it in these ways that have developed, men have innovated. For instance, there is something we're going to refer to with with the initials, M and S, and that stands for missionary society. A missionary society is is a, a, a human organization that has been brought together for the purposes of doing evangelistic work. Now, this is not a new idea, although it is sort of uh, experiencing a resurgence of practice uh, among our brethren even today. But the idea is that a a, a a group of men organize themselves and form a society, a missionary society. The missionary society has a board of directors, uh, maybe even a chairman of the board of directors. Men come together and appoint themselves to be in charge of taking the gospel to various places in the world. It's a missionary society. It's not a new idea. It's actually an old idea. been around for a long time. For instance, Alexander Campbell, he was off on this subject. You know, some people think we have un, unfailing allegiance to Alexander Campbell. We do not. Alexander Campbell had some right ideas, but he had some wrong ones, and one of them was the Missionary Society. Alexander Campbell was the first president of the American Christian Missionary Society. And what a missionary society does is that it solicits money from churches, and then the board of directors the chairman and whatever, however they want to designate themselves, they collect this money and then they make the decisions about how the gospel will be sent. And so they send it out to one, more than likely they send it out to multiple preachers who are out in the field uh, doing the preaching work. The argument is, this is an efficient way to do it. That, that, that we need. In fact, Alexander Campbell argued that the job of preaching the gospel to the world is so large that it needed to be organized uh, by way of a missionary society. Now, what about that? Human reasoning might say, "Well, that sounds reasonable. That might be an efficient way to move forward." You know, that's how you might try to justify it from human reasoning. What's the problem, though? Well, the problem is that that's absolutely not authorized in the New Testament. You can't read anything like that. You can't read anything like that at all in the New Testament. There never was a missionary society, right? And so if we were to establish a missionary society or if we would choose to support a missionary society, what would you say about that? 
you would say that we would be doing that without New Testament authority. There's no authority for that. Well, can we do it? No. Not if we're going to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Colossians 3.17. Not if we're going to do everything with authority. We can't participate in a missionary society type of arrangement. Now, that's really important. Sadly, our brethren had sort of come to that understanding decades ago. But now, I'm, I'm sad to say that some brethren have lost their way. And they are going back to... Uh, the missionary society approach to doing evangelism. One of the big ones that you might hear of from time to time, World Bible School. World Bible School is a missionary society. Churches of Christ support World Bible School. And they take the gospel to the world, but they're doing it through a missionary society arrangement. It's not scriptural. It's not authorized. Well, some of our brethren, realizing that problem, decided that they would develop an alternative approach, still arguing that local churches are not capable, apparently, of doing the work that God has assigned them to do. Some of our brethren, because they knew this missionary society was no good, not biblical, they did something different, and they developed what we have come to call the sponsoring church arrangement. So the thinking was you can't set up a, a human institution. You can't set up a board of directors over a missionary society. That's not in the Bible. But elders are in the Bible, And so we will designate the elders of this sponsoring church to be the overseers of evangelistic work. And it could be all kinds of different evangelistic work. What we'll do then is have other churches send money to the sponsoring church. And then the elders of the sponsoring church will oversee the preaching work. They'll send the money to one, likely more than one, different preachers, different efforts of spreading the gospel. But the sponsoring church will be the overseers. The elders of the sponsoring church will be the overseers of this evangelistic work. It's evangelistic work, after all. It's taking the gospel to the world. And so, and elderships are obviously in the New Testament. We'll do it that way. Now, What do you think about that? Well, the problem, of course, is, again, it's not authorized. Read for us in the New Testament where there ever was a sponsoring church. Read to us a pattern wherein churches did evangelistic work by various congregations sending money to one church that then oversaw the distribution of those funds. We already looked at the patterns set forth in the New Testament. That's not one of them, is it? The church has always sent their support directly to the preacher in the field. If one church was sending to the preacher in the field, that church sent directly. If multiple churches were sending to a preacher in the field, they all sent to him directly. There never was an intervening body. There wasn't a missionary society, and there wasn't a sponsoring church either. That's not a biblical pattern. That's not authorized. There's some other ways to argue that, by the way. One of the reasons we oppose the sponsoring church arrangement is because it violates the notion of local church autonomy, independence, and self-government. In in the sponsoring church arrangement, these contributing churches surrender their oversight to the sponsoring church that assumes the oversight. 
And so these churches are giving up their oversight, and this church is assuming an oversight. The elders of the sponsoring church are over a work bigger than their own local work. There's no authority for that. In fact, that is specifically condemned in Scripture in First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Peter limits the authority of elders to the flock which is among them. They have local oversight, but their oversight cannot extend beyond the local church where they are elders. The sponsoring church violates that principle as well. And so when it comes to evangelism, certainly it's authorized work. We know how it's supposed to be done because the patterns are clearly set forth for us in the scriptures. And the idea of a missionary society or a sponsoring church, those types of arrangements are not in the New Testament. And that's why we oppose them. Now, sometimes you have people ask, what, what's the difference between churches of Christ? Why, is there, why are there different uh, congregations that apparently don't interact with one another? One of the reasons why, because churches split over this question of how to do evangelism. All agree that we ought to be evangelistic, but the how to do it became an issue. And churches divided over it. They divided over the missionary society. They later divided over the sponsoring church arrangement. Those two methods are not authorized. All right. We said that the New Testament authorizes us to do work in the realm of evangelism. Another authorized work of local congregations is edification. And this may be an oversimplification, but if you want to view evangelism as taking the gospel out to the world, edification, strengthening, building, instructing, encouraging those who are already a Christian. So uh, edification, there's authority for us to be doing this. If you want the authority, and again, I don't think people are going to argue this point, but we want to make sure we have authority in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Now, remember, of course, there in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul is talking about the church at Corinth and how they, they had some problems about how they were exercising the use of miraculous spiritual gifts. That's the context of this. But notice when they came together, so when the church came together, he said, let all things be done unto edifying. And so that's still a principle. We, we don't practice miraculous spiritual gifts today. Those have ended. But still an instruction for the church is come together unto edifying. And so there's a statement that provides for us authority that the church work in the realm of edifying, building up, strengthening those who are already Christians. We have... Again, a number of approved examples of that sort of thing. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, just as soon as the church began in Acts chapter 2, notice at verse 46, uh, actually verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Uh, verse 46, they continued daily with one, in the, one accord in the temple. And so the, the, the very first congregation of God's people active in building up those who were already Christians. We could skip over to chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, 
Acts 11, verse 26, uh, verse 25 says, Paul departed to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass uh, that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. There's Barnabas and Saul or Barnabas and Paul working with the church at Antioch of Syria, instructing, teaching, encouraging, building up. And so, again, I don't think there's any argument about this. The church is to engage in building up those who are already Christians, doing the work of edification. But again, we have to ask the question, how? How should that be done? Well, let me suggest to you that that work of building up Christians requires some judgments on our part, some expediencies, ends to the mean, uh, uh, means to the end, rather, some means to accomplish that end. We want to strengthen the brethren. How do we do that? Well, we'll have to provide a place for doing it, choose a time to do it, appoint teachers to accomplish it, arrange students that can be instructed, decide upon subjects that will be studied, and so forth. That's that's all within the, the purview of local congregations to do those things because churches are authorized to edify, right? And so those kinds of judgments will be made and and uh, uh, the church is, is authorized to act in those ways. But we cannot do it like this. And again, these are some things that folks have invented over the over the centuries and decades. Uh, for instance, and a lot of our denominational friends, in, in their religious work, they'll have a, a whole separate organization set apart to conduct by Sunday school uh, uh, arrangements. And so they'll have a separate organization within the local congregation that is the Sunday school. And they, that, that Sunday school organization will have their own treasury. And they'll have their own overseers, a separate organization to do the work of, we would call it the work of edification. They're, they're teaching. They're having Bible classes. They're instructing. But they, they've arranged it in a way that you don't read anything about in the New Testament. We couldn't do that. Away. It is the work of the church, but it has to be done properly. And it can't be done by inventing things that are not in the New Testament. The same sort of argument is made for churches supporting Christian colleges and schools. Uh, this, this was a big problem among Church of Christ. Again, something that caused division back in the day. It was called the college question. Can local congregations support Christian colleges? And churches of Christ, among churches of Christ, they were a number and still are a number of different colleges and universities. Uh, Lipscomb up here in Nashville, Freed Hardeman uh, in Henderson, Tennessee, uh, Harding in Arkansas, Pepperdine in California, uh, Abilene Christian College in Abilene, Texas, and, and others. Those, those colleges <coughs> began to solicit churches to send them money because they argued we are instructing young Christians in the faith. We are, we exist and, and they would argue that one of their principal reasons for existing is to strengthen and build up these young Christians as they are maturing into adulthood. So send us money. You churches send us money. The Christian colleges plead and lots of churches did, but it became a divisive issue because conservative brethren said, 
Man, there's nothing like that in the New Testament. There's no authority for that. That pattern is not established in the Word of God. And so that became a problem. Uh, again, we think that the churches supporting the college is an unscriptural, unauthorized practice. And then another thing that also has become very divisive, and you know this well, churches have become involved in promoting social and recreational activities. Very prevalent in, in a number of churches. We're talking about churches of Christ, not necessarily denominational organizations. But even among churches of Christ, there's a big youth group movement. And larger congregations very often actually have a youth minister who is appointed to sort of do that work of helping, encouraging the young people. Should young people be helped and encouraged? Absolutely, yes. Should young people have activities to engage in, things to entertain them, recreation for them to pursue? Absolutely, yes. No problem with that. Should there be social activities for the members? Is it good for Christians to get together and have meals together, for instance, or engage in other social interactions? Absolutely, yes. But, here's and here's the big objection, that is not the authorized work of the church. The Lord never gave to the church the job of organizing, overseeing, promoting social and recreational activities. That became, again, a very divisive thing among churches of Christ. The so-called fellowship hall issue, you know, churches decided, well, instead of going to private homes to have social gatherings or instead of going to the park to have a picnic and everybody bring their own, it'd just be more convenient if we built a big room and, 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 and people could come there. Uh, maybe right after services, just go to this big room and have their meal together. And, of course, if you're going to have a meal, even if people are bringing their own food, you need, you need an oven to warm things up and a, and a wash sink to clean the dishes. And so that evolved into a fully uh, equipped kitchen. Uh, where's the authority for that? Where do we read of the church doing that by way of a proved example? Where do we read of a commander statement that authorizes the church to act in, in social or recreational things? Uh, the young people want to go to Six Flags for for a getaway on Saturday. We'll have the youth minister do that, and he'll take the church bus. He'll drive the church bus and all the young people to go to Six Flags on Saturday. Is it good for young people to go to Six Flags? Yeah, I'm sure it is. Is it good for us to get together for a meal? Yes, absolutely it is. But it's not the work of the church. It's not authorized. We couldn't do it and say, here's the thus saith the Lord. Here's the authority for doing that. So, yes... There are some decisions to make in regards to the work of edification, but we cannot just throw authority to the wind and do it any way we want. A number of our denominational friends have followed the Sunday school organization. We think that's clearly not in the Bible. But a number of our own brethren have, have sought to have churches support Christian colleges, and a whole lot of our brethren have gotten the churches actively involved in promoting social and recreational activities, and there's no authority for that. All right, we're going to end our study right there. We've talked about two of the broad areas of work that church, local churches are authorized to engage in, evangelism and edification. Lord willing, next week we want to talk about that third big area, the question of benevolence. What about the church's work in benevolence? Now, here's what I want to emphasize to you, and we'll bring this up again next week, Lord willing. 
these areas have been divisive. Why are there differences among churches of Christ? Why are churches of Christ divided? Uh, Why does this congregation not have anything to do with that congregation and they don't interact and so forth? Why are there what are very generally referred to as liberal and conservative churches of Christ? Well, it has to do with these questions of Bible authority. Not so much what should we do, but how should we do it? And we are divided because we think that folks have not been careful to follow Bible authority. We take the very conservative approach. We speak where the Bible speaks. We must be silent where the Bible is silent. We must do all things with Bible authority. Thus saith the Lord, book, chapter, and verse. We think that others have not been so careful, and therefore we can't join with them. We can't be in participation with them in unauthorized things. We've talked about problems with evangelistic methods, edification methods. Next week we'll talk. And again, sadly, there'll be differences about how we should approach the work of benevolence. We thank you for your uh, joining in with us online again this Sunday evening. Thanks for your diligence. We're getting really good feedback that... The vast majority of our members are taking advantage of these online opportunities. That's good. But we're also very grateful that we have the physical opportunity to join together as we continue in our uh, uh, parking lot, drive-in, worship services on Sunday morning. Uh, and, And, of course, some decisions will have to be made about how long we continue that and when we can start meeting again in, in our auditorium and so forth. Uh, and, and, and pray for wisdom. Pray for that the men of the church will have wisdom in making those important decisions. Thanks for being there. Continue to pray, reach out, interact with your brethren. Uh, we look forward to seeing you real soon. God bless.